0: Well, we are uh, in a series walking through the book of Genesis, and so if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you over there on that table. You can go grab one. That's our gift to you uh, as a church to keep. Well, up to this point in the book of Genesis, we have seen God create the universe, create the world out of nothing. We've seen him create everything, create us in his image as men and women. And last week, we saw God rest on the seventh day, rest on the Sabbath, and enjoy his good world that he made, enjoy uh, his people that he made, uh, and enjoy the world with them. This week, we're kind of zooming in on the Garden of Eden uh, and focusing on what God has to say to us in that. And here's what I want us to see this morning from the Garden of Eden. I want us to see from Genesis 2 that God is a good God who gives us a good world to live in and a good design to walk in so that we might have fellowship with him. Uh, I know that's repetitive again, but I I really just can't get away from this idea. I've just been blown away at the goodness of God as we've walked through these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And so we're going to see the good world that God made for us, what we were really made for, what our home is, what we lost because of the fall, and where all of us are going uh, if we trust in Jesus, the world he is bringing uh, back into reality. And so let's look at this together now. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. We'll get through the end of the chapter, but we'll just read to verse 15 and then pick up the rest uh, as we go. Starting in verse 4, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. I've never really heard of bad gold, but the gold of this land uh, is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Well, let's think first about how this text shows us a good God. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to see uh, that Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 are not contradicting each other. Uh, In Genesis 1, it says that the plants were created on day three and human beings were created on day six, Uh, but here it seems that the order is flipped, right, where you've got God forming the man from the dust before he causes the trees to spring up in this garden. Uh, But this is not a contradiction. Like Moses didn't write Genesis 1 and think, ah, I screwed up some things there and I don't have an eraser. I guess I'll just fix it in Genesis 2. Like no, that's not what he did at all. What we have here in Genesis 2 is a more zoomed in, detailed description of day 6 of creation. And so if Genesis 1 is kind of the wide-angle lens, like the, the panoramic shot that's kind of taking everything in in all of its breadth and depth and beauty, Genesis 2 is where the camera zooms in and the movie slows down and begins to focus on the details. These are, these are complementary pictures. They're not contradictory, and both are good and helpful. I heard somebody put it like this. I thought this was helpful. Uh, He said, it's kind of like the difference of flying over New York City in a plane and being able to take in the whole city from a bird's eye view uh, is much different than walking the streets of the city, uh, but in both cases, it's still the same city. Right? And those different sites that you get don't contradict one another, they complement each other, they help give life to one another and fill out the picture. This is what we have going on here uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. And on top of that, uh, the focus here in Genesis 2 is no longer on the whole earth like it was in Genesis 1. Now we've zoomed in and we're focusing on the land of Eden. Uh, if you notice in verse 8, it says that there is a garden that God plants in Eden, uh, but Eden itself is not the garden. Uh, Eden was not just the garden. It's a bigger land than that, and it's focused on this land of Eden. And so when it tells us about these plants and these trees that have not sprung up yet, uh, it's not concerned with whether or not they've ever been created. It's saying there's no one to farm. There's no one to irrigate. There's no one to make these things come up from the ground yet. And and so God begins to form this man from the ground. And then the picture that God gives us here in verse 7 is just so Uh, Beautiful. Man, we've already seen in Genesis 1 that we are created in the image of God, that we're made to reflect him and made with the capacity to have relationship with him in a way that nothing else in creation can. And here we get another complimentary picture of this as God forms the man of dust from the ground and then he breathes into us life so that we would become a living creature. And I think there's a wordplay here that's important for us to see uh, in this text. The Hebrew word for man here is adam, uh, and the word for ground is adamah. And so God creates the adam from the adamah and then breathes life into him so that he becomes a living creature. And this shows us two things. Uh, one, it shows us that, that being formed from the dust reminds us that we are creatures. We, we are not God. We are created beings. But God breathing life into us means that we have a special relationship with God. This is what it means to be created in the image of God, that we have the capacity for a relationship with Him and to be able to know Him in a way that no other animal does and cannot have. Like God doesn't do this for any of the other animals. He forms them from the ground, but He doesn't breathe life into them. It's only human beings that He does this with. And I just think it's so important that we see this because sometimes... I think we focus so much on our depravity and our sinfulness that we all just think we're kind of worthless worms that God kind of puts up with, but the first word that the Bible speaks about us is not about our sinfulness, but about our dignity and our worth and our value. We are made in the image of God, made with a capacity for relationship with Him, made to know Him in intimacy. Like, yes, we are from the dust, but we, so we are not God, but he breathed life into us, and we bear his image, and so we are incredibly significant. Listen, your life is not meaningless. You are not just one more cog in the system. You were made to know and have fellowship with God, to be loved by God. You have immense dignity, value, and worth because you bear the image of God. This has to be what comes to our mind first and foremost when we think about ourselves and when we think about other people. Like I I want you this week, when somebody cuts you off in line to get gas, after you're done cussing them out in your car, uh, I want you to think they are that's someone who's made in the image of God. That's someone that Jesus deeply loves. When when you are tempted to gossip about someone or slander someone or write someone off or put someone down this week, I want you to first think they are made in the image of God. This is someone that Jesus dearly loves. This is what's most true about us. First and foremost, all human beings bear the image of God. Now, verse 7, what we've got here in verse 7 is what uh, is called an anthropomorphism, which is just a big word that means when the Bible authors ascribe human characteristics to God uh, so that we can better understand him and what he's doing. Like, this is figurative language here in verse 7. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do. Genesis is using poetic imagery here so that we can understand and see the significance of what God is doing here. And so what is it telling us about God with this description? it's it's telling us about God's imminence his nearness and his presence with us if genesis 1 was focused on god's transcendence how different he is from us as the creator how powerful and distinct and unlike us he is genesis 2 zooms in and begins to focus on his nearness to us on how he loves us and he cares about us like that you even see this in the word that's used for God here. And, And over and over in Genesis 2, it says the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. That word Lord is Yahweh, the name that God reveals about himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. The same God who created everything is the same God who covenants with his people, who enters into relationship with them, who who knows them intimately. It's this God who created us, and this God, this creator, gets down on his hands and knees and gets his hands dirty, so to speak, when he forms Adam from the dust. One guy put it like this. He said, although God infinitely transcends Adam... He intimately enjoys his new friend that he fashioned from the dirt. He is near to us. He is not distant. He is not far off. And so listen, I just want to encourage somebody in here today. Maybe you do feel forgotten or unseen by God, but you're not. Ah, like, oh man, if we could have the grace to believe this, that this creator God cares about you, that He is intimately near to you. Listen, this God is not just a creator, He is a lover. He is a savior. He's the God who enters into relationship with us. He intimately cares about you. He breathed life into you. He, he created you. He made you for a relationship of love with him. Listen, that's literally why you exist. You exist on this planet to be loved by God. He is near to you even if you can't feel it, even if you can't see it. He's not far off. He's not distant. He is right here. He will if you will call on him, he will answer. And so we see that God is a really good God, but that isn't all that we see in this text. We also see the good world. Uh, that God puts us in. Verse 8 begins to describe this garden in Eden, and it tells us that God makes trees to spring up from the ground that are good to look at and pleasant, uh, pleasant to look at and good to eat from, which just stresses how abundantly he's providing for his people here. Uh, and then verse 10 tells us that Eden, the garden was a well-watered place, that there's a river that then splits off into four rivers, and this river waters the garden. This shows that the garden is going to be fertile. It's going to be a place that produces beautiful plants and good food. Uh, Think of Psalm chapter 1, which I think is using language that points us back uh, to Genesis 2 here when it says that the person who meditates on God's word day and night will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaves don't wither and in whatever it does, it prospers. Like Eden, this garden, is full of life and food and abundance. It's rich in beauty. It's rich in food because of God's provision for it. And if that's not enough to convince you, the word Eden itself means delight. Like this is a place of joy and delight and goodness and fellowship and beauty with God. It's a good place that God gives the man and woman to live in. It's just a gift for them to enjoy as they walk with him. Like God was providing everything they needed here in the garden. I mean, this is paradise. This is life the way it's meant to be, and it was just a free gift to mankind because God is a really good God. But that isn't all that God wants us to see about this garden. Look at what it says again uh, in verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, the words for work and keep here are the same words that the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers uses to describe the duties of the priest at the tabernacle to guard and keep the tabernacle. In fact, the word that's used for work here is often translated as worship or serve in the book of Exodus and other places of Scripture. And so Adam is being made to be a priest, made to worship and obey and serve God in the this garden. And not just that, there are so many things in the description of the garden here that are later picked up on and pointed back to when the biblical authors start to describe the tabernacle and the temple, because the Bible is trying to show us that the garden is a tabernacle. The garden is a temple. It's the place where God dwells in a special, intimate way on the earth. It's the place where God could have fellowship with where humans could have fellowship with God and know him in an intimate way. Like this is what we were made for and this is what God gives Adam and Eve as a gift, intimate face-to-face relationship with him where he walked with them and talked with them in the garden. And so I think this whole idea of God calling us to be priests to, to transform the way we think about our work, because First Peter 2 tells us that we, the people of God, are a royal priesthood called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so for us to be priests means we get to partner with God in his good care and rule of the world. We get to be priests who represent him to the rest of the world, which means I think that our lives should never be boring because in everything we do, we get to represent God and enjoy him through the work he's given us to do. This means that even the most mundane of tasks is charged with significance because you can glorify and represent God in the way that you do it. I mean, think about this. The work that God commands Adam to do here, he commands him to do it before the fall which means that work is not a product of the fall. It's a good gift from God uh, meant for us to enjoy. Now, we'll, we'll see next week that because of the fall, because of sin, we experience toil and frustration in our work, but that doesn't mean that work isn't a good gift from God. I think this is why you see, uh, even if you hate your job, like when someone can't work anymore, whether through just kind of aging out of the ability to do that or through an injury, there's this real sense of loss that they feel because work is a good gift from God. God gives us our work as a way to represent him and take part in stewarding the world. While God often does the kind of immediately miraculous, direct and miraculous, the way that God most often provides is through ordinary means. uh, And those ordinary means are usually people. I mean, think about it. Like we don't get magically get our food dropped from the sky, right? Like somebody has to prepare it. Somebody has to drive that prepared food to the store. And then somebody's got to work at the store so that we can go get it. All right, God provides through ordinary means, and those means are usually people, and our different jobs and responsibilities all get to play a small part in this. And so listen, like you're, you're not just going through a training right now. You're being used by God as part of the way he cares for the world, and he cares for people. You're, you're not just a teacher. You're being used by God to serve his world, steward his world, and care for people. If your job is to clean toilets You're not just cleaning toilets, you're representing God and and stewarding and caring for people and for the world that he created. Like our work matters to God. He gave it to us as a gift, as a way to image him. I mean, we should think this way as we go about our work and about our responsibilities this week, that God has given me this to do. He has put me here as a way to make much of him and represent him in the way that I work, to to take care of the world, to take care of Of people, And so God gives us this good world to live in because he's a good God, but he doesn't just put us in a good world to live in. He also gives us a good design to walk in. Look again at verses 16 and 17 uh, with me. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in a world full of yes, God gives Adam and Eve one no. He says you can have fruit from every tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you eat of that one, you're going to die. Now, a lot of people think this is just kind of an arbitrary command. Like, what's so wrong about taking an apple and taking a bite out of that? But it's not arbitrary. Like, God gives us this command for our good. What God is saying when he says you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, is that he is God and we are not. That he knows what's best for us and we don't. Like eating from this tree is not just about taking a bite out of an apple. It's about moral autonomy. It's about not recognizing that we are creatures who are dependent on God for our life and our breath and our everything. We are dependent on God for our sense of right and wrong. What's good and what's evil. Eating from the tree is about, will we think we are a better God than God is, and we know better and try to figure things out on our own, or will we trust him? Like, we weren't meant to wait, we weren't meant to bear the weight of having to figure out good and evil on our own. That's not freedom, that's slavery. Because every, like, God's commandments are not bad, they are the lanes that we are meant to run in. If a fish says that he's only gonna be free if he can get out of water and start walking on the dock, like even if he gets on the dock, he's not going to be free because he's getting out from under what God created and designed him and purposed him to do. Like that's not freedom because he's getting out from under design. So so people who are enslaved to like every passing pleasure, people who just give in to every impulse towards sin and break every commandment they can every time they get the chance, are not free because they're getting out from under the way God designed us to work. Listen, so many of us, I know we could testify to this, that no matter how many commandments we have broken, we didn't feel free. We didn't feel liberated. We felt more enslaved and more in chains. Like God knows what's best for us, and when he commands something, he always commands it for our joy. Like, God with this command is saying, hey, there's a wall over there. Don't go run into the wall and bang your head against the wall. Like, that's not going to be good for you. That's going to hurt if you bang your head against the wall. You don't want to do that. Don't bang your head against the wall. Like, God gives us a good design here and and asks us to trust him that he knows best for us, but we don't trust him. We think, no, I will go bang my head against the wall and see if it does hurt. I'm going to figure this out on my own, but more on that next week. Uh, from Genesis chapter 3. Look at the next part of this good design that God gives us. Look at verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of heaven and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So, this is the first not good in the first two chapters of Genesis. Right up to this point, it's been God made it and he saw that it was good. He made it and he saw that it was good. He made it and he saw that it was very good. But here, God says it is not good for Adam to be alone. And right here for Adam, the way God is immediately going to address this "not good" is through marriage. But listen, God is not just talking about marriage here. Like whether we do get married or not, it is not good for us to be alone. Like please don't miss this. This is this is paradise. This is before sin enters into the world. Nothing wrong. Nothing out of balance. And yet still, even here, God says in paradise, it is not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for us to be without community. It's not good for us to be in a place where there isn't anyone who knows us, anyone we have deep friendship with, anyone we can walk with in any sort of intimacy. Listen, I understand pursuing community is hard. It's always going to be hard in a world full of sinners because you're just putting sinners together every time you pursue community. But letting the difficulty of pursuing it cause you not to engage and not pursue deep friendships with anybody here is like starting a race by shooting yourself in the foot before you even take a step. Like it is not good. God made us to know and to be known, not just by him, but by one another. We were made, we need friendship and community and relationship and companionship. Now, God knows it's not good for Adam to be alone, but he also wants Adam to realize this for himself. And so God starts to bring the animals to Adam and lets him name them. And uh, I've always kind of wondered how this works. Like, did God just kind of line them up for miles on end and Adam was like sitting on a tree stump and it would be like, okay, next. Uh, That thing's got a really long neck. I guess we'll go with giraffe. That seems to make sense. Uh, Next, okay, that animal is huge. Uh, We'll go with elephant for that one. Uh, Like, we we don't know how this went down, but what we do know is at the end of this, God names, uh, Adam names all of the animals, everything in creation, and he realizes there's still not anyone or anything like him. That he still hasn't found someone fit for him. And I I think we get this, right? Like, I I know Jacob constantly dogs on me, uh, pun intended, uh, for the way that we obsess over our dog Oakley. And uh, I'm not even going to lie, we absolutely do. Like, I love that dog. Uh, the blinds on our windows at our house, they don't have like a pull string, and so you kind of like push them up from the bottom, and so she's figured out that she can knock them up with her nose if she wants to see out the window. And so every, uh, every time I come home from work and pull into the driveway and she hears my car, she'll come over to the window and knock it up uh, and get real excited to see me and then sprint over to the front door and greet me at the front door uh, when I walk in. Uh, It's so funny to see the way, if you ask her if you want to go throw the ball, uh, she'll get so excited and she'll just sprint to the back door and we'll play fetch with you for hours. Uh, I I love it how if Braylon and I are kind of sitting down watching TV or watching a movie or reading a book, uh, she'll come grab a toy and come push it up against our leg because she wants us to play with her. Like, I I love that dog. She's just an awesome dog, Uh, but at the end of the day, she's a dog, and so like, She can't talk back to me, right? Like, we don't have any sort of relationship in the sense of, like, she can't communicate with me. She barely even understands me, and she's never going to talk back to me. And so if she was all that I had and I had no sort of human companionship, I know I would be like Adam saying, it is not good for me to be alone. This is what Adam is starting to realize after he goes through all of these animals. Like, I imagine hanging out with the lions has got to be legit, uh, pre-Tiger King, before the fall. Um, but, like, at the end of the day, uh, that, that was not in my notes. At the end of the day, uh, like, it's got to be pretty lonely because those lions, as cool as they are, are not going to talk back to him uh, and so Adam realizes it's not good for him to be alone. He wants somebody that's like him, that's fit for him. And so God begins to address this, and he begins to make a helper fit for him. Look at what he does in verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took, while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, before we go any further, I do feel compelled to say, like, when, when God calls Eve, when he calls the woman uh, a helper, like that is not a bad word. I know we've loaded a lot into that definition in our culture and made that seem like it's something that's kind of subservient and second class, but it's not. I mean, this word helper is used over and over in the Old Testament to describe God, that he is Israel's helper who comes to their aid. It's used of other armies coming to help other armies in battle so that they wouldn't be defeated. Like it's not a word of weakness. Hear me, look right at me. God is not making a servant for Adam, he's making a partner. Like a helper fit for him stresses the equality between the man and the woman. She, Eve is a human being. That's what makes her fit for Adam. She's like nothing else in all of creation. She is equal to him. This is what makes her fit for Adam. And I love what Matthew Henry, an old Puritan, says about this verse. He says, Eve was not created from a part of Adam's head, uh, symbolizing that she was greater than him, or from his feet, symbolizing that she was lesser than him, but from his side, symbolizing that she is equal with him. And so look, both our relationships in the church as brothers and sisters and our relationships in our marriage should be thought of first and foremost as side-by-side partnership and friendship and companionship. Like leadership and submission is not the first or the loudest word given about marriage in the Bible. If you don't see marriage first and foremost as a partnership among equals where you're joyfully serving Jesus and making much of him together side by side, we're going to get off track in a hurry. Listen, we do believe as a church that the Bible teaches what we call generous complementarianism, that men and women are equally created in the image of God and given complementary, like ways that fit together to make much of Jesus and bear his image in the world. Like we're not the exact same as men and women, and we should celebrate those differences and use them to glorify God with. And listen, we are going to joyfully celebrate women here and their necessity in the church, and we're going to put them in the highest positions of teaching and leadership. The only thing we believe the Bible would say is that the office of elder, the office of pastor, and the authoritative preaching of the word of God to the gathered church is reserved for elder qualified men. Not all men, for elder qualified men. Beyond that, we are going to joyfully partner together as brothers and sisters in the gospel because the dominant note of the Bible is that some men can do this and women can't do that. The dominant note is that we're partners. We're brothers and sisters. We're co-laborers in the gospel. And, And listen, we do believe that the Bible would lay out and would give to the husbands the responsibility of spiritual leadership in the home. That that's what men... ...who husbands are called by God to do, to exercise spiritual leadership in the home. But listen, men, I need you to hear me. The Bible never, the Bible never defines our leadership in the home in terms of I get to be the one that calls the shots, I get to be the one that makes the decisions, I get to be the one that makes the rules, I get to be the one that has the tie-breaking vote if we don't get to agree on something, I get to be the one that calls the shots and she just gets to shut up and come along for the ride. Like, No. All that crap is stuff we added to the definition. The Bible never says any of that. The only time the word authority is used about the marriage relationship in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 7, where it says the husband has authority over his wife's body, and the wife has authority over her husband's body so that they would not deprive one another. It's mutual authority, mutual partnership. Like, you know how the Bible defines spiritual leadership as a husband? Ephesians 5 says that we are to be like Jesus who gave himself up for his bride, up for the church, that we are to take the lead in sacrificing for ourselves. And so men, you want to know how you be a a leader and a big man in your home and you do this? You die. You die to yourself. You take the lead in dying to yourself and to your sin and to your selfishness and, and you resolve to do whatever it takes so that your wife would be built up so that she would flourish. Like you take the lead in saying, I'm going to go low, I'm going to die to myself, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do whatever it takes to privilege her wants and her needs and her desires so that she would be built up and she would flourish. And this is the leadership that the Bible calls us to as husbands. And so when you see the Bible calling you to spiritual leadership in the home, like you shouldn't beat your chest and get excited that you've got a little kingdom to rule over now. You should tremble at the responsibility in taking the lead, in dying to yourself, and in pointing your wife and your children, if you have them, to Jesus in the ways that you go low and you serve and you privilege her above yourself. Like, you take the lead in dying to yourself and selfishness. That's what it means to be a leader in the home. Because marriage is a joyful partnership. It's a dying to ourselves so that we might serve Jesus together, side by side, and make much of him together. This is the beautiful vision that Genesis 2 is holding out for marriage for us. And it doesn't stop there. It just keeps getting better. Pick back up in the text with me. Verse 22. And so God forms Eve with his hands, just like he did with Adam. And then he brings her to Adam like a father, walking his, bride, walking his daughter down the aisle. And when Adam sees her, he breaks into the first poetry that we have in the Bible, uh, the first love song. Some have called it the first R&B song. Uh, I'm not going to call it that. Some people have called it that. Uh, But Adam sees her, and he breaks into song, and he's like, man, at last, this is what I have been looking for. This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She is just like me. I'm going to call her woman because she is from me. She's from the man. And then Moses adds some commentary here in verse 24, and he tells us that what's going on here with Adam and Eve isn't just for Adam and Eve. It has, for all time, like universal significance. This is for all time. Marriage is to be a covenant of love and clinging to one another where new family units are formed, where your highest loyalty becomes your spouse. Like in a real sense, it's a dying to your old life and starting a new one where you exclusively commit yourself to your spouse uh, for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, till death do you part. This is God's good design for marriage, one man and one woman, the two becoming Now, before we go any further, I I really do want to be sensitive here because I know that for so many of us, like the things that we're about to talk about, it's not just an issue that's kind of out there in the culture. It's an issue that's personal for us Uh, because I I would imagine that all of us have have friends or family that we know who has walked through some of these things or you yourself are struggling with and walking through these things right now. So I I really do want to tread carefully here. But listen, God is calling us to this design For our good. It is a good design. This is why we have to stand on God's word and on his good design for marriage, even in a culture that rejects it, because it's a good design. It only leads to brokenness and devastation when we try to go outside of it. And I'll just tell you, like the Bible isn't even taking special aim at homosexual relationships here either. Uh, It's an equal opportunity offender. Because here, it's forbidding all sexual activity outside of marriage, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. Like all sexual activity, you sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, looking at pornography, uh, committing adultery, cheating on your spouse, all sexual activity outside of heterosexual, one man, one woman, in the context of covenant marriage where you have exclusively committed and promised yourself to one another, all sexual activity outside of that is contrary to God's design. It's sin. And listen, once again, this is a good design. God's not an idiot. He knows what's best for us. When he says one man, one woman in the context of committed till death do us part covenant marriage, he's saying, hey, here's a big awesome field for you to go play around in and enjoy in. Uh, If you go over there on the boundary, like there's a cliff over there and you're going to fall off. You don't want to do that. You'll break your leg. It won't end up well for you. Don't go over there. And, but we take all of that freedom and, and all of that space that God gives us, and we say, God, no, you don't know what you're talking about. That cliff looks awesome. I'm going to go run over there and see uh, that falling off looks awesome for it myself. Like, I think it's going to be a great time to go do that. It won't. It won't. God loves us. He is not trying to take joy and freedom from us with this. He's trying to give it to us. Listen, I know people will say at this point, like, yeah, I know God says this here, but the the rest of the Old Testament is filled with guys who are polygamous, like they have tons of wives, and and here's what I'll tell you, the book of Genesis is going to show us how that works out for them, but I'll go ahead and give you a hint and a spoiler, terrible, like boatloads of family dysfunction and brokenness that's directly related to their polygamy. Like, sex outside of the context of covenant marriage, one man, one woman, where you've committed exclusively to each other and saying, we're not going anywhere, sex outside of that, it can only lead to consuming each other and using each other and taking from each other. It cannot lead to giving to one another and loving one another and serving one another because there's always the chance that that person could leave there's always the chance that 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 permanence could be broken. This is the context that God is giving it to us, and God is not trying to take from us with this. Like, sex is his idea. He made it. Do you realize that? Like, God did not turn around in the garden and come back and, to use the language of the Bible, see Adam and Eve knowing each other and think like, oh my gosh, how did they figure out how to do that? Holy Spirit, they were supposed to leave room for you. Where were you on that one? Like, no, he didn't do that. God made this. It was his idea, and so it would only make sense that he would know the best context for it, that he would know what's best when it comes to it. I mean, think about what verse 25 says here. It says they were married, they were happy, they were naked, and they were unashamed. They're happy with nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of. I'm not the first person to point out that when we switch the order of that and when we go for the nakedness before the covenant and commitment of marriage, it only leads to shame on the other side. And I really don't think I need to argue hard about that and convince you of this because I think so many of us know this from experience. Because we have gone outside of God's good design and we've all felt the shame of sexual sin and brokenness. I mean, unashamed does not describe any of our experience, we are all sinners. None of us is sexually whole. All of us are sexually broken in some way or another. None of us on our own experience this feeling of unashamed with nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of, which is not good news. But, but I think at this point, you've got to ask yourself the question, like, why, why is God talking about this here? You know what I mean? I mean, we are, we are two chapters into the Bible, and God's talking about Marriage? I mean, surely there are more important things uh, for him to talk about, especially this early on in the story, right? Because, man, uh, God knows many of us are not going to get married, and Paul will even go so far as to say that he thinks it's better to remain single than to get married so that you can be single-minded in your devotion to Jesus. And, And on top of that, like, I'm not naive enough not to recognize that for many of us in this room, as these words were read from Genesis there's a lot of hurt there because through no fault of your own, that doesn't describe your experience. Like you've had a spouse who has abandoned you, who hasn't been faithful to this covenant, who hasn't uh, loved you in the way that they, Jesus has called them to love you, that hasn't done this. And so marriage is going to be a real source of difficulty for so many people in a fallen world. And so why is God talking about this here, right? Like If I'm God and I'm writing the Bible, and praise God that I'm not, but if I'm God and I'm writing the Bible, I'm going Genesis 1, we're talking about creation, and then Genesis 2, we're talking about like justification by faith, or here's the gospel just explicitly laid out, or here's who Jesus is and what he's going to do for you, but God wants to talk about marriage. Why? Well, it's not because human marriage is the end-all be-all, it's not at all. It's because the union of man and woman in marriage, the two becoming one, it points beyond itself and it sums up the entire story of the Bible and it's the goal of all human history. Like all of human history is heading towards a wedding. You see, the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. And In the middle, God over and over in the Old Testament is referred to as the husband of his people, that he is Israel's husband, the people of Israel are his bride. But what we see over and over as well in the Old Testament is that the people of God are an unfaithful bride, that they are adulterers who constantly give themselves to other gods and to other lovers. And every chance they get, they give themselves away, they break covenant, they're unfaithful and they go after other gods. They don't love God first and foremost, they chase after other things. And listen, if we had the, if we had the ability to be honest with each other in here this morning, we would admit this is our story as well. Right, unashamed does not describe our experience because we have turned to idols. We have worshiped other gods. We have flipped the middle finger to God's good design and tried to find life on our own outside of him. We don't experience life in the garden like we see here in Genesis 2. We experience brokenness and frustration because of our sin and unfaithfulness. But even though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And what the story of the Bible shows us is that even in our unfaithfulness, God continues to pursue. God keeps coming after us. God keeps wooing. God won't quit on us. In Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about marriage between man and a woman. And he quotes verse 24 from Genesis 2 here about a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. And he says, this verse was always and ultimately about Jesus and his church. You see, the Bible begins with a marriage because the good news of the gospel is that even though we are sinners, even though we are unfaithful, even though we have broken the covenant, Jesus will not stop pursuing his bride. Jesus does his first miracle at a wedding and turns water into 150 gallons of wine to show us that he is God come to find us. That he is God come to bring the joy, come to bring the party and marry his people and win them back to himself. And just like Adam slept and then God made Eve, he built Eve out of his side so that Adam could wake up and say, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We, the church, the people of God, are called Jesus' body because it's out of his sleep, out of his death on the cross that we are built. The blood and water pouring out of His side on the cross shows us that it's His sacrifice that gives us life, that our new life is from Him. He took on our flesh and He sacrificed Himself so that we could be one flesh with Him, so that we could be united with Him. Marriage is not the point. Marriage points to the point. Jesus is the point. And because Jesus is the point, because of his sacrifice and what he's done for us, you don't have to walk in sexual sin and shame any longer. Because of Jesus, you can be made brand new. You can be washed completely clean. Because he took on our flesh, you can be united to Jesus. You can become one flesh with him. He died so that we, no matter how broken we are, no matter what we've done, He died so that we could experience the intimacy and fellowship with God that we were made for, so that we could get back to the Garden of Eden. And because, that's not it. Like, because of what Jesus has done, we can be given a new name. A a theologian from the Middle uh, Middle Ages, Bede, he talks about, Uh, how Adam called Eve woman because he wanted to give her a share in his name because she was from him. And so he says, isn't it fitting that we are called Christians because our life is from Christ. When Jesus saves us, he gives us his righteousness in his name so that our identity is defined by him and no longer by what we've done. All that is his becomes ours. And what's most true about us now is that we are his. The Bible begins with a wedding, and it ends with the wedding of Jesus and his church, and it tells us that it has been granted to us, it's been given to us, his bride, the people of God, to clothe themselves in fine linen, pure and bright, symbolizing that we have been washed completely clean by the blood of Jesus. This is where all of us who trust in Jesus are headed. Whether you are married in this life or not, you will be married to Jesus. You will see God face to face. You will get back to the Garden of Eden. You will experience, verse 25, of being unashamed with nothing to hide and nothing to fear. The intimacy and closeness and friendship that even the best of our marriages in this life experience is only a dim shadow and pointer towards the intimacy and closeness that we will have with Jesus on that day and the closeness that we can have even now in beginning as we walk with him. And that's not all that Ephesians 5 says. Ephesians 5 says that getting our eyes on this gospel truth that marriage points to can change everything about our marriages now. In fact, the gospel is the only thing that can change our marriages now because when we realize that marriage is not the point, that Jesus is the point and that our marriage has been given to us by Jesus to point to him we start to think about how we can best honor and reflect him in our marriage rather than serve ourselves. Like the gospel can put an end to the tit-for-tat game of, well, she didn't do this for me, so I'm not gonna do that for her. He would never do this for me, so I'm not gonna do that for him. No, when the gospel hits, we serve, we go low. We say, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna go low, I'm gonna die to myself because that's what Jesus did first for me. And so this is the offer on the table, This is the good news of the gospel, that no matter what you've done, you can be washed clean by Jesus. You can be one flesh with him. You can be given his name and a new identity. His story can become your story. He can bring you back to the Garden of Eden. Listen, don't you want this? Don't you want freedom from your shame and what you've done? Don't you want to be able to experience the feeling of being unashamed with nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to cover over? This is where we came from, this is what we lost, and this is what we can have, and it's what we will have for all who trust in Jesus on that day. But until that day, it's right here for you if you will receive it. If you will only come to him, he will unite you to himself. His name will become yours, his identity will become yours, his righteousness will be given to you, all that is his will become ours. This is the good news that the gospel gives us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this good news. That even the best of our marriages in this life could not reflect um, to the full the good design that you gave us, God, of being uh, naked and unashamed with nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of. But, Jesus, through the gospel, you can bring us into that where we know that you've paid for all of our sins, you've washed us completely clean. You've made us completely new so that what's most true about us is that we are yours and that all that is true about you becomes true of us. Jesus, would you help us to walk in that and to rest in that this week? For those of us in here who are married, would this gospel truth transform our marriages? Would you help us to love our spouses in the way that you have first loved us, to be a reflection of the good news of what you've done for us? Jesus, for those who who will not get married in this life, would you strengthen them with this truth as well, that what's most true about us, all of us, is that we will be one flesh with you. We will be united to you. That this is what's most important, this is what's most ultimate, and this is what's available to all of us who are in you. So Jesus, would you help us to do that? I pray that you would, in your name, amen. Amen.